This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Amen. While we were doing our pops, our men's prayer beforehand, the Holy Spirit put something in my mind, and as we were singing this song, it just totally brought it home to me, right? We know that there was this time where there was darkness over all of it. There was none of this. It was just darkness, Genesis 1 tells us. And God speaks, and His breath makes this creation that we see around us. And then I think about like when we were just like one little cell inside our mama's womb, and God speaks, and that breath comes into our, into our little one cell and makes us life. And then God speaks, and we get the, this, this Bible that we're reading and we're learning from every week as we're here and pops, and God speaks through those words still, and He breathes into our hearts, and He changes us. He's constantly speaking, constantly breathing. I just praise God. It's so great to be here tonight with you. It's such a joy because all I do all week long is I put on my calendar the schedule. Okay, Pop's prep time, Pop's prep time. And everybody knows in my house, that's Pop's prep time. And I'm sitting here and I got my Bible and I got the websites open, like seven different tabs. And I'm sitting here, I'm trying to prepare. And in the midst of all of this, I have to prepare. God's saying, hang on, I got something for you right now. And then I stop and I cry because I cry like a baby all the time. Uh, And the kids are like, Dad, what's up? I'm like, I'm just amazed that our God, He's so alive and He waits for that time for us to give Him to pour into us. And tonight, brothers, I'm so excited to share with you what He has shared with me through this portion of Scripture. We're going to spend most of the time actually finishing up verse 10 from last week and then we're going to look at verses 11 through 13 and finish out the story of the centurion today. So before I get started, let's just, let's just pray, settle my heart. and Lord, I praise you. I thank you, God. I thank that, you, that we are here tonight, Lord. We're, we're bursting this generosity place at the seams because we are so excited to hear about your word and what you want to reveal to us, God. And I pray that as those words come through these lips, Lord, that uh, they would touch the souls of the men around here as you have touched me this week, God. Change us. Make us who you want us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as a recap, we'll look through verses uh, 5 through 10 here real quick. So um, this is again the story of the centurion. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. We've talked about this powerful centurion, a leader of a hundred, at least a hundred soldiers, and someone had come and told him about the power of Jesus, and the centurion recognizes that Jesus is the only way that his son is going to be healed. Yes, and I'm convinced, even though the, the, the translation from the ESV says servant, I'm convinced that this was his son for three main reasons. One is, this centurion is desperate for healing, desperate for this son to be healed. That word pais, it means son in every other, or not every other, but so many other portions of the New Testament. So it also translates beautifully as son, that word pais. And then in verse 9, the centurion uses the word dulo, which means servant and only servant. 
So if this was only going to be his servant, then he would have used Julo throughout the whole thing. But Matthew is trying to tell us that this was actually not his servant, but his son. And the centurion's son is being tortured by this affliction. But Jesus wants to heal him. And Jesus is the commander of the angel armies, and they're not limited by any physical location. The centurion, he knows about what it is to be in charge, and he knows what it is to have earthly authority. But he knows that Jesus has this divine authority over this spiritual angel army that is so much stronger than any earthly army the centurion might have, or any enemy attack on his son. So the centurion shows his faith by asking Jesus to heal his son from a distance, asking him essentially, command your angel armies to do your bidding. And then last week we talked about how Jesus marveled at this centurion's faith, because this centurion, he showed this amazing understanding about divine authority. He had never been to Sunday school, right? He had never gone to a church service at Northway or Victory or whatever, Grace, any of the wonderful churches around here. He had never been to any of those. He had never even been to Pops. But somehow the centurion knew that if he came boldly before Jesus in front of everyone, humbled himself, became vulnerable before the Lord, that God would hear his prayers. And when I first started talking about the centurion back last year in November, we were talking about how we could picture him as kind of like that Jack Nicholson character from A Few Good Men, like big, brawny, you know, medals and, and ribbons and the whole deal. This was a strong, confident guy. But Jesus marveled that this centurion would be so assured that Jesus' son's, that, that, that this, his own son's healing had already been figured out by Jesus. All that earthly pride to the side, the centurion approaches God knowing nothing is impossible for God. And this is the faith, pistis is that word, the faith that God is actively seeking. Just like he seeks the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son of Luke 15, he's always seeking for people who have this kind of faith. So last time we had ended, we were looking at Hebrews 11.1. This is a really important verse for us to, to understand. Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith, pistis, is the assurance, which is the word hypostasis, of things hoped for, the conviction, elegkos, of things not seen. Okay, so, so when we look at these words, the, the, now faith, we talked about faith last time, the word pistis, but we're going to look at this word uh, translated as assurance. It's hypostasis. Okay, now what that word really means it means substance. If you want to know kind of like what is the root, like what are they really meaning by that? It means substance. It means you can be assured when you know what something is made of. Like I know that this floor must be made of something strong enough to hold me up. If I jump up in the air and land on the ground, it's still going to hold me up. Like the floor, I know the substance that it's made of. It's solid. And by the faith, by faith, I know the substance of who God is, and I can hope and trust in Him, because He is perfectly revealed in my Savior, Jesus Christ. If I want to know who God is, I need only to look at Jesus. And in Jesus, I see love, grace, forgiveness, power. I see everything that I need, that I need to know that God is for me and not against me. That no matter what this world brings against me or my family, I know the substance the hypostasis, the substance of who God is, and that He brings me victory in every situation. So faith begins 
by knowing the substance of God fully revealed in Jesus Christ. But yet that doesn't remove all of our problems, does it? Our life's problems continue. I mean, some of you guys in here are struggling with some serious issues. You've got some medical issues, maybe in yourself or in your loved ones, in your home. You have marital problems that maybe you haven't even shared with some of the guys in here yet. You've got recurring patterns of sinful behaviors in your life that just keep happening. You've got issues with pornography, maybe even adultery, maybe alcohol or drugs. There are things going on in your life, even beneath the surface, that you don't necessarily share with everyone. And maybe in this moment you're saying, I know Jesus. Or maybe you're saying, I'm coming to know Him. And that's great, but then you have to ask yourself, why are we still, why are you still dealing with these same issues in your life, right? That's the million-dollar question. That's the question that keeps many people away from this idea of faith. And many people will give us their two-cent answers. They might say, you know, you don't have enough faith. That's why you still struggle with that stuff. They might say, you don't have the right beliefs. You're believing it wrong. And they might say, your prayers aren't being heard by God because you're still so full of sin. They might say, you're not praying enough. You're not praying correctly. You're not using the right words. There's going to be some toe stepped on here tonight, guys. Get ready, because it's pops. Some of you might even think that some of those phrases are the right things to say to people, but I want to share with you the Jesus that I know revealed. Because none of those answers that we just went through reveal the beauty of knowing the Jesus perfectly revealed in Scripture a Jesus who is actively and frantically seeking and searching to save the lost. A Jesus who says simply to the centurion, I'll come and heal him. No strings attached. No required way that the centurion had to bring his prayer. You see, I've heard all of these two cents and pat answers over the past eight years. My daughter being diagnosed with this, this chronic disease is called myasthenia gravis. And one of my least favorite, or one of the ones that pops to my mind, was when somebody once told me, you know why your daughter still has that disease? She still has that disease because you're ending your prayers for her saying, in Jesus' name. But you need to end your prayers saying, in Jesus Christ's name. Because if you don't say the Christ, then you're not going to get your prayer answered. And I have to say to you guys, seriously, like, is that the God revealed in Scripture? Is that nonsense? Is that, does that look like Jesus? If only, if God's like standing and waiting for me in heaven, if only Kishore would end his prayers the right way, correctly, then I'd heal his daughter. Is that God? Do we see this God? Have we seen him in the Sermon on the Mount? Have we seen him as we've gone through Matthew 8? I haven't seen that God. It's all nonsense. So I want you all to hear this clearly tonight. You need to know and be convinced that our Savior, Jesus, is for us and not against us. Romans 8, 31-32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? See, God loves you. And He wants to heal you. Just look at how he responds to the leper and the centurion. And next week, or next time I'm up here, we're going to talk about you know, Peter's mother-in-law and all these ways that he just wants to heal people. There's no quiz. There's no rote words that he's expecting. He wants to bring healing to your health. He wants your child's health. He wants your marriage healthy. He wants your addictions gone. 
And the next part about the faith in the second half of the Hebrews verse is really important for us to see tonight. So we say, now faith is the assurance or substance of things hoped for. The last part is the conviction of things not seen. You see, since I know the substance of God, that He is for me, that He wants to bring healing into my life, that He wants to make me more like Him in everything that I am, and since He alone has the power to do all things, even the impossible things, and I also know that He has given me the power through His Holy Spirit freely to do those things with Him, then I can have the conviction. Elegkos is the word. The conviction. It means I can know. Even when I can't see it, I can know that the future is perfected for me. And I can live in that truth because I know that it will be that I will not have health problems. My daughter won't have health problems. Marital, there won't be any marital problems, financial problems. There won't be any addictions forever, for eternity, because God says that He will bring His healing. We can have that faith, even if we don't see it right now with our earthly eyes. We can have that faith because we know God. And maybe He'll bring that healing right here in this blip of eternity we call life. Right? Because truly it is just a drop of water in an ocean full of eternity. Even that doesn't explain it, right? Because eternity is forever. So maybe it happens right now in this moment. Maybe it happens right now before you leave Pops. And praise God, I've had those types of healings in my life, and I love those healings. Or maybe He brings it with Him when He brings heaven on the last day. But someday soon, in the eternal scheme of things, we will have perfected bodies, perfected minds. It says in Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We're going to get glorious new bodies. And lastly, I just I want there to be no confusion among us men in this room, because I know we talk a lot about the importance of words, and the words are so important, the words that come out of our mouth are so important, but it's not because there's some magical properties to the words that we say, but it's because the words that we speak are a reflection of what's going on in our hearts, in our souls. You can have the darkest soul ever and still say words, the demons did it all the time to Jesus. Let's look at Matthew 12, 33 through 37. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Remember that. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And we're going to get to that. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's not telling us to change the words that we say on our own power. He's telling us that our hearts changing allows out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth to speak. So if we're walking around saying, oh, woe is me, I've had problems with addiction my whole life, this is just my lot in life. 
Or, oh, my father, you know, he was abusive towards my mom and me, and so that's just what I've got to be. It's just what it is. Or, oh, I've never been so smart. I'll, I'll never amount to anything. Or, or my wife or my girlfriend, she's just not interested in me like she once was, so I'll just have to rely on pornography or, or maybe other women in my life. You see, what we're doing by these types of words is we're showing what is inside of our hearts, and our hearts in that moment are showing that we have no idea the substance of who God is, or the conviction of what He can do. Hebrews 11.1 1. It's not the literal words that are condemning us. It's not like God is an angry God saying, oh, well, because you said that, that's what you're going to get. That's not Jesus. Have you seen that Jesus in the New Testament? No. We have to reject that portrait of the angry God. The words are showing that if we don't know the substance of who God is today, then we will never have the conviction of what He will do for our tomorrow. Put simply, we are showing by those words that we don't have faith. And when our hearts aren't changed to put our faith on display through the words and the actions that we do, then we are condemning ourselves. Not because of the words in themselves, but because of what the words reflect, which is our heart. So when our hearts are not changed to follow after the Lord, when our hearts have not been changed by the Holy Spirit within us, then the words that we speak, they're going to reflect that. But when we know God and what He wants to do in our life, our words naturally will change. Brothers, I think sometimes we focus so much on changing the words than on our own power than letting the Holy Spirit change our hearts and letting those words naturally come out of our mouth after that hard work of the Holy Spirit doing the cleaning. Now that takes some humility. That takes some centurion-level humility to say, God... I got words, I can say them, and that's okay, but I want my heart changed so that the words that I'm speaking reflect what's going on on the inside. A true change, not a forced or a faked change. Just look at these examples of faith. Just in the, just in the last few weeks, things that we've talked about. The leper never says, I'm not a leper, I'm healthy. He doesn't say that to Jesus, does he? That would be make-believe. We would identify that as make-believe. And he doesn't say, oh, woe is me, I'm a leper. I'll never get my family back. I'll never have a job. I'll always live on the outskirts of town. Don't worry about me, Jesus. No, he doesn't say that either. Because that would show no trust in what God can do. No, his words are a reflection of his heart knowledge of who Jesus is. When he says, Lord, in Matthew 8, 2, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The leper says that. It's like, God... You got this. And if it's your will, make me clean. Because he knows Jesus. Example after example of this. Just another one. The bleeding woman, we haven't obviously done that uh, here yet in Matthew, doesn't say to Jesus when she's, when she's in the crowd, she doesn't say to Jesus, I'm not bleeding. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. No, that would be fake. And she doesn't say, oh, I've been so tired, and I've been bleeding for 12 years, and there's just no hope for me. Just let me die. She doesn't say that either, does she? No, her words and her actions are a reflection of her faith, of her heart change, of her knowing who God is. Luke 8, 47 through 48, it says, When the woman, this is the woman with the issue of bleeding, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
And here we see the centurion, right? The centurion doesn't say, my son's not paralyzed, he's walking. No. And he doesn't say, oh, poor me. My son's forever going to be tortured, forever in pain. He'll never walk again. Mm -mm. No, the faith that Jesus commends here is that the centurion knows God, knows the power of God, and knows that God will do the impossible. So when he uses his words, he asks Jesus, he naturally has the right words to say. So brothers, I say this with, with the goal that you would just let this kind of simmer a little bit in your heart, that there is no need, in fact, there is nothing biblical about a make-believe faith as disciples of Jesus. Pretending is not what God wants us to do. We need to accept Jesus' sacrifice, invite His Holy Spirit into our life, and let Him grow our trust and our faith in Him. And if you don't yet know the substance of who God is, if you have not yet encountered the real Jesus, don't pretend so that it looks like you do. Instead, He's asking, He's saying, I want you to know Me. He's saying, spend time in the Word. He's saying, come to Pops. He's saying, go to your church groups. He's saying, come to know me. And when I reveal myself to you, it is always anyone who comes to ask, seek, and knock. The door will always be open to you. Always. It says in Luke 11, 9 through, 9 through 13, it says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit in this, in this section. He says, For everyone who asks receives, and the, to the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened to you. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, hear this, brothers, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you don't yet have that inner conviction that God will do anything to return all of His creation, including you, all of His creation back to perfection, that He can do the miraculous, even in this brief period we call life, but even if He doesn't, you still know Him, and you know that He will at some point in eternity perfect you. Then spend time with Him and ask Him to reveal to you the glimpses of your perfected future. Oh, and there's so many beautiful verses about this, brother. Look at Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Whew. For the former things have passed away. What a, what a gift. That's conviction. That's faith. That's knowing. A leg cost. That's knowing what's coming. Or Romans 8.18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, as you might imagine, I've taken this biblical understanding of faith very seriously over the, over the years since my daughter's diagnosis. And as she has ups and downs with her disease, and it, it's really forced me to know the substance and trust the substance of who God is and to really have the conviction that He will heal her. And I'm not just pretending, I'm not just saying words, but I truly know His heart for my daughter. I know His desire to heal her. 
And I've come to celebrate the small victories that he's shown us. It's been over a year since we've been in the hospital, the longest period of time we've ever had since this disease came. And playing more minutes as, as the point guard on the JV right now tonight. She's finishing up the varsity game. She plays minutes because the varsity girls sometimes foul a lot. I don't know. It's crazy. So she's playing like full two games in a row with this muscle disease that's supposed to make her too weak to even play a quarter. And yet this girl... Because of her God, because of her conviction, because of the faith that she has, she knows that God will give her the strength for that when she is weak, He is strong. And every time I pray and every time I think about her, I visualize and focus on her complete healing and her perfection. With every prayer I see, I visualize that child with no disease in her, that no matter what the enemy may bring, I know that my God will always have complete victory. That whether on earth or in the heaven to come, this disease will never have the final word in her eternity. And this whole, the Holy Spirit, He comes and He gives me a deeper knowledge of God through, this, through the struggle. And now my faith, more than it ever could have before, stands on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And the words of my mouth naturally proclaim what He is doing and what He will be doing to complete her healing. And this is in every, of the, every struggle that I have in my life. I can live with the freedom of knowing that no matter what comes in this place, in this life, that God has my future and my eternity in His hands. So now we take this knowledge of faith and we're seeing how the centurion's changed heart led to the faith that impressed Jesus, that He marveled at the centurion. And Jesus' next statements were going to be very shocking and challenging to the audience and probably will be for many of us as well, depending on our backgrounds uh, of, of what we've thought in, in the past. So it says in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with, with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And that word for recline is anaclino. Anaclino is not the same as like sitting in your lazy boy recliner. It's like it's, it's a way of saying that you're reclining in relaxation, a Jewish way of saying having a feast with others. Because mealtimes were not rushed affairs in those days. There wasn't any fast food or eat-in-your-car meals. I, I read something recently that one out of five American meals are eaten in a car. I'm thinking, that's it? <laughs> I mean, I'm not doing as good as the average American, I guess. I don't know. But it's so different, right? If anyone in here has ever visited like another country, maybe, you know, in Central America or, or, or Europe or something like that, one of my uh, uh, best men was uh, doing very well when he first started his career as a businessman. And he traveled all over the place back then. And so he gave us miles as his, as his gift to us as our wedding gift, uh, airline miles. So we're like, anywhere? And he says, yeah, anywhere. So we went to Paris. And, you know, I had my list, right? I'm a doctor, right? I got a list. I'm going to get this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do check boxes, right? And, and, and so we're like, all right, let's just get a quick lunch. Now, if you've ever eaten in a European country, there is no quick lunch. So we sit down at this table, and we're like, yeah, okay, we know what we want. Here's what we're ordering. They're like, what about for second course? I'm like, uh, I didn't know. There. Oh, third course? What? Oh, dessert course? Oh, okay. Next thing you know, two hours goes by, and I still felt like we rushed the waiter, because he's not used to this American style of we got to go, we got to go, we got things to see. And meals in Jesus' time were the same way, right? When you look at the paintings of the Last Supper and things like that, that's, that's what their mealtime was like. It was all like this reclining on each other, on pillows. I guess there was no homophobia back then because these guys were like on top of each other. Like that was the way it was back there. 
And Jesus is saying here, at this particular banquet, we're going to recline and we're going to be hanging out with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which to the people of that time would immediately say, that's end times. Like when you talk about the, for, the fathers of the faith and you're going to recline a table with them, they would have immediately recognized that Jesus is talking about the end times. And they would have known that a banquet signifies the end times as well because that's how it's described in the Old Testament. A big banquet you see in Isaiah 25, verse 6. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And then verse 9 it says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. You see, you notice in Isaiah 43.6, Isaiah says that the Lord has created this banquet for all people. That Hebrew word is lakal, lakal, sorry. Lakal, that means everyone. It doesn't mean just, you know, some people. It means everyone. He's created this banquet for all people. And then here, Matthew, in this verse, verse 11, is telling us that people will be coming to this banquet from the east and from the west. And Anatolon and Dusmon. Those are the two words, east and west. All, it actually literally means rising and setting of the sun. Anatolon means rising of the sun. Dusmon means setting of the sun. So east and west. And it's also used in end times imagery, this idea of the rising to the setting sun, to mean everyone, all creation. It says in Malachi 1.11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, so you see it right there, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So from the rising to the setting. But we know Psalm 107, and we may even have a song that you sing with it. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands. Here it is, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Or Isaiah 43, 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring where? From the east and from the west. I will gather you. So this idea that everyone from all over, from the rising to the setting sun, is coming to this banquet. There's a nameplate at the banquet for every single person who has existed or ever will exist. And now people are getting uncomfortable. Because you're saying, oh my gosh, is this guy going to talk like a universalist? Is he going to say that everyone is saved? No, I'm not. Let's just end that right there. I'm not. You are only saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, through accepting that gift. But the Bible is also clear that Jesus' intent, He came and died to destroy sin itself. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And He came to set the captives free, it says in Luke 4.18. So He died for everyone. And there's lots of verses that say that too, but here's a few. You know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That word for world is actually cos cosmon, which is cosmos, which means like the universe. Like it's not even just saying He died for all the people. He's like, He died for the universe, okay? So it's all-inclusive to say that Jesus died for everyone. 2 Corinthians uh, 5.15, He died for all that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 1 John 2.2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the purpose of Jesus coming and dying on the cross was so everyone could be given the opportunity to be at this banquet, this wedding banquet. Now some of you may come from a more Calvinist background, and God bless you, God loves you too. Um, I've had some wonderful discussions with, with folks from that background in the past, and I love them, I really do truly. But you may believe that Jesus died only for a select few because there's a couple of verses in the Bible that talk about this word predestination in Paul's letters. And I'm not going to go through all of that again given the time today. We've gone through it before, but let me just tell you, when you reread those verses on predestination again, change your mindset and think of it this way because it will make all of Scripture fit when we're talking about Jesus dying for all. You think of it like this. There's a train. And the train is leaving the station. And that train's name on the front of it, where it's called predestination. That's the name of that train. And that train, whether you're on it or not, has one destination, and that's heaven. That's the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's where that train's headed. You are predestined. When you get on that train, you are predestined for its final stop. And everyone has a ticket available for them. Not just some, not just the frozen chosen, everyone. If it's up to you as an individual if you want to get on that train. God's not going to force you. Conductor's not pushing you on. And up ahead, you see this huge party, Father, Son, Holy Spirit hosting this party. And our job as believers is not to sit on that train car and look out the window at all the people not on the train and wag our fingers at them and say, ha ha, you're not going, I'm going. It's, not, it's, it's so everyone can be told about this party to let them know that there's a nameplate waiting for them at this table to let our lives scream out to them that all they need to do is RSVP to the host. Jesus Christ has sent the invitation. He has died for you already. Now come on, let's get on the train together because we're predestined to get there. Got to tell them you're in. Amen. So let's be honest with ourselves, though, okay? Because it's very easy to think um, big picture on this, but there are definitely people, if you think deep down inside your heart, definitely people who you do not think are worthy at being at that banquet. I know I've got people in my mind when I think about this. This is the challenge that God gave me. You spend some time with some family members over Christmas and Thanksgiving recently, right? And there's that family member who's so crass and profane and maybe anti-Christian, Right? He, that person could not possibly be invited to this banquet. Not with the holy God, right? Or maybe there's that neighbor. Maybe he's got the, already, it's, it's only, what, January, but he's got the, the, the thing, the political sign down, and it's for the candidate that you're like, that's not the right candidate. Right? And you're like, no. Nah. And, 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 this, and this neighbor is so pro-everything that you're against, everything that's good and right about America, right? And, and surely, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to have to sit next to that guy at the heavenly banquet, right? And what about like child abusers and sex traffickers and abortion clinic providers and you know, even like historical like Stalin and Hitler and all these guys? They're not worthy, right? See, we've gone down this path a couple of times when we've talked about these things just to help us remember this one thing. And let God challenge you with this. These are, these are not my words, but His. God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for all of them, all sinners, 
And he is the one who invites everyone to the heavenly banquet. <laughs> he doesn't ask you to approve the guest list. He doesn't, ask, he doesn't care what your thoughts are on the guest list, in fact. In fact, Luke tells us that this banquet feast will be so holy and perfect that even the invited guests who have known him will need to be forced to recline at this table. See, in Luke 12, 37, this blew my mind. Luke 12, verse 37, it says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Now that word is very similar to what we were talking about for recline, but the conjugation is different. It's anaclinae, and anaclinae means being forced to recline. So, so Luke is telling us, in the similar scenario, that when we go to this table, when we see this banquet that God has set before us as his gift to us, that some of us are going to have to be forced to recline at this table. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One is, we're going to say, oh, I am so unworthy because of the sins that I've been forgiven. I'm so unworthy. I fall short of the status required to sit at this table. And if, I'm so gracious and glad that this host has told me that I'm invited. And then he will force us to sit at the table and accept his grace. There's that. And I'm sure there's, that's a portion of it. But the other part of it is, I also think we're not going to be happy with who else is at the table. Walking in, perhaps seeing some of our enemies who have repented of whatever it was that kept them from God, and now they're seated at this heavenly table. And now we're saying, what? There is no way that God should have invited that guy. Right, this party was supposed to be for me and the people that I agree with. See, this is the natural way that our mind thinks. And in fact, there are many parables, which I'm not going to get into today, that talk about how the believers will show up and be like, whoa, I didn't want that guy there. And God's going to say, who, who are you? <laughs> right? Now, as I've said, I'm not a universalist. I don't believe everyone eventually is going to come to this banquet. And I believe the second half of this verse that we're looking at in, in verse 11 of Matthew 8 is going to show us that. However, I think that if you have received the unmerited grace and favor of Jesus, you did not earn it, you should, as a believer in Jesus, want that to be the case. You should want that everyone comes to the table. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm saying it should be the desire of our heart that every single person that we meet in this life will be there at the table. And what can I do to make that happy, happen? Because what Jesus has taught us all throughout the Sermon on the Mount and continues to teach us in Matthew 8 is that we have to stop thinking of ourselves as higher than others, as less sinful than others, and start recognizing that we don't belong in heaven if it wasn't for what God has done for us. Amen? And this is not a new challenge that God is raising for us today, right? For us in America, a major dividing line is politics. Talking about the neighbor putting this stuff in there. But what about the politicians themselves, right? Do you want to see Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Mitch McConnell in heaven? Do you want to see Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, all these people, do you want to see them in heaven? Not because any of them deserve it but because God so loved them that he gave the gift of Jesus to them. See, this is pops, guys. This is where we talk about the real issues with real implications and challenges because this year, it's already started, but there's going to be some insane politics. And I'm not going to tell you which side I fall on. I don't know which, if I do fall on a side or not because my kingdom is not of this place, but that's a whole different story. What I'm going to tell you is this. 
Whatever the Holy Spirit is talking into your heart right now, He's telling you, I'm telling you He's telling you this. He came for all. And He's challenging all of us to rise above the political nonsense and treat those across the aisle with the love and the respect that Jesus Christ has for them. And you see, for the Israelites of that time, a major dividing line was Jew or Gentile. Jew Jew or non-Jew. And Jesus has just told this crowd that the faith of the Roman centurion, a Gentile, a non-Jew, is greater than what he has ever seen with an Israelite. And you're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know, Romans are good guys, you know. No. This would have been so offensive to the Jewish audience in that time. Because let me put this in perspective, and you're going to get offended and get ready. Because it would be like Jesus, right? Your Savior putting His arm around a newly repentant Middle Eastern terrorist. Let's say, in his last moments, Bin Laden says, I give my life to Christ. I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying, let's say. It would be like Jesus walking in with Bin Laden here to Pops, putting his arm around him and saying, I've never seen faith like that in these Pops guys. Offensive. Right? I'm always offended. And I am just making it up. Right? That's how offensive Jesus' love was. In fact, I know His love was offended because that's what brought Him to the cross. It gets Him killed, right? And right after Jesus commends the faith of this non-Jew, Gentile, Roman centurion, He says that banquets guests in heaven are coming from all over. The east and the west. Not just for the Israelites. They're coming from the east and the west. All people are coming and being invited to this banquet. In the Old Testament, God was preparing the Jewish people. They just didn't see it. He was preparing them to let them know that Gentiles were going to be included. And this would have been really upsetting if they would have read those Scriptures in the way that Jesus reveals them to us. They would have said, what? Our people are called. We're called through Abraham. Our people suffered in Egypt and were miraculously saved by God. God spoke to our people through the, to the prophets and God's going to send the Savior through our people. And they would have been correct in all of those points, but they would have been missing the big picture that the Savior would be coming for all regardless of whether the Jews agreed with that plan. And in this moment, He's also preparing us to remind us that God is inviting people from the east and the west, from the rising to the setting sun, from every tribe and every nation and every country around this globe, even from the political right and the political left, the Savior is inviting everyone to this feast through His blood. And the feast inaugurates the kingdom of heaven. And somebody opened my mind to this this week. The first miracle, the wedding of Cana. The last miracle, the wedding feast. It's all about the party. It's all about the wedding. God was preparing us from the first to the last miracle for this wedding feast. Praise God that we're all invited to. And as we wait for the host to return and personally serve us, it says, at this banquet, we've got a stack of invite cards that we've got to spread to everyone that we meet. So let's see. Verse 12. It says, While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness... And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? First of all, who are the sons of the kingdom? The sons of the kingdom are the Jewish people. Okay? Now that's offensive. Because he's saying, it seems, that he's saying that they're going to be tossed out? Like, is this anti-Semitism from the Lord? Of course not. No, Jesus was a Jew. And so were all of the disciples at the time. There wasn't a Christianity yet. So God was not being anti-Semitic. But you've got to remember this context, right? The Roman centurion... Great faith, amazes Jesus. 
deep, because he showed a deeper understanding of God than even many of the Jewish people had. And the Jews knew the Old Testament, but this centurion understood divine authority and what it meant to trust God completely. So what Jesus is saying here would certainly have been offensive to those Jews. He's telling them that their head knowledge of Scripture and their pure bloodlines and their right thoughts and their right actions and their right beliefs, none of those things automatically guarantee you a place at the banquet. And get ready to be offended because I know that a lot of people believe this very strongly and you know I've heard a lot of things in my years as a Christian, but one of them that I've heard is that all Jews automatically enter the kingdom of heaven because of their heritage. That somehow the heritage gives them a privileged status to believe whatever they want. But I'm sorry, guys. Jesus throws that concept right out of the window right here in this verse. And he throws it not out of the window just for Jews, but also for us. Because there's a lot of people, perhaps even in this room, I don't know, that say, well, when I go to church, I'm checking the box. Right? And when the census comes around, I'm going to check the Christian box. Because, you know, my grandfather was a pastor, or my mom really prayed a lot when I was a kid. And yeah, sure, I don't go to church all that much, and I don't really delve into the Word all that much, and I don't really know God. But you know what? I've got the box checked, and I'm good. And Jesus is telling the Jews and us that not everyone who is invited is going to come to the banquet, the wedding, church, the wedding of the church to its Savior. You see, it says in Matthew 22.11, but when the king came in to look at the guests at this banquet, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him out into the outer darkness. Same words. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So to, to be at this banquet, we have to be clothed in the righteousness of God through accepting Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection through the internalization of His Holy Spirit, we get clothed with the righteousness of God. And the parable is not intended to bring fear, like making it seem like, oh, there's a short invite list and you can't get in, you've got to try really hard. No, it's intended as a warning that just being invited, because the whole world is invited, so just being invited and showing up is not enough. We have to know the groom in order to intend the feast. I'm just going to end quickly with this, with this portion when we're talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth. This phrase, I looked it up, is only found seven times in the Bible. Six of them are in Matthew. Once in Luke, which is the one I think we just read, right? Uh, no, that was Matthew also. So, so six in, in Matthew, one in Luke. And the words are, weeping is klothmos. Klothmos means crying out loudly. Crying out loudly. And gnashing of teeth is brugmos. And Jesus is saying, he's telling a fact, that not everyone is going to accept the free gift. And those people outside of the heavenly realm, outside of this banquet, are going to be in darkness. Because you see, Jesus, it tells us in Revelation, is the light in heaven. He's the source of light. Revelation 21, 23. And the city, meaning the holy city, when it comes back as heaven, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So Jesus is the Lamb, the light source. So outside of that heavenly realm is utter darkness. But it used to bother me a lot, and in fact I talk to a lot of people who are like, well, do you really believe in hell? And I say, yeah. Why? Because these people are not crying and gnashing their teeth in pain, but in anger. The other times we see this also, the same thing, and they're angry. 
They're, 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 see, God is not willing that any should perish, but He's not going to force people to come in to heaven. And there are going to be people who prefer, it says right in John 1, there are going to be people who prefer to remain in darkness. And they're going to cry out in anger against God because they don't believe that what He's doing is right. And they're going to remain outside of the city gates, which incidentally, also in Revelation, those gates are always open, which I find interesting, but I'm not getting into the theology of that tonight because I've offended enough. But it's by their choice that these people remain in the outer darkness. And they weep and they gnash their teeth in anger, despite the fact that God has invited them. So, ending in verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So the section ends. Jesus returns his attention back to the centurion, and he brings the son the healing that the centurion believed that Jesus could bring. And that word for believed is pisteo, which is, um, a, a, again, a, a different conjugation of the word for faith, pistis. And it just means that you're having deep faith. You have faith. So this, because this centurion had faith in the, in the fact that Jesus could heal, the Son is healed. And knowing the substance of God and having the conviction of what He will do is what brought the healing for this child. So brothers, let those words of Jesus be the words that we hear daily. That because of our faith, that we can live in the freedom of knowing that God's will is being done in our lives, even when we can't see it. Amen? All right, why don't we stand? All right, so for those of you who are uh, newer to, to POPs, we always end with a decree. The decree is intended to solidify what we have learned, but also many times uh, for us to align our hearts with our words, to be able to speak these things out so that uh, as God hears our heart and our desire for change, that it comes into our heart and changes us. So let's say this together. Lord, we praise and thank You, Lord, we praise and thank you. For, revealing more of yourself for revealing more of Yourself to us tonight. To us tonight. And we thank You for Your Holy Spirit, you for your Spirit who freely comes into our heart, comes into our heart and, changes and changes us from the inside out. And tonight we decree, tonight we decree that we want more of Your Holy Spirit. We decree that we will have the faith of the centurion to know that whatever we need or ask for in your will will always be done for us. We decree that our words will match the faith that is in our hearts. We know that it is only faith in your gift of salvation offered through your sacrifice that invites us into the kingdom of heaven. We decree that we will love all of your children and point them to your saving grace. We decree that the enemy will have no power over our faith in what you are doing in our lives. And we will hear your words Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, brothers. Amen.